Matthew chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 5 through 13. This is the word of our God. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of your Son, that he instructs us and would have us be wise in the ways of our relationship with you. We pray that we would learn from him about prayer and how to pray not only tonight, but in the weeks ahead. So, Father, be with us. May the voice of Christ be heard in this room, and may your Spirit apply it to our hearts and lives. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I wonder how you tend to pray. Could the way that you pray be best described as Trinitarian? Um... And does that even matter? Uh, I've had some interesting conversations in this room about why would it even matter to ask to whom do we pray? As long as the to whom is one of the persons of the Trinity, we have three persons in one God. So if you're praying to the Spirit, you're praying to the true and living God. If you're praying to the Son, you're praying to the true and living God. So why does it even matter? Westminster Larger Catechism says that it does. It, it spends not just the, the question and answer we just did together, 178, thinking about it, but actually 178 through 182, that whole section deals with the question of to whom do you pray and what part do each person in the Trinity have in how you are to pray and how you actually do pray. And as we confessed in the first of these, we confessed that we are to pray to the Father through the Son and with the help of the Holy Spirit. I want to think about each one of those uh, briefly. It will, it will probably be quite brief tonight, thinking about these three points, because they should be fairly straightforward. I think the most important thing in these simple points is to just instill in us that there is a proper to whom for us to pray, that it it does actually matter biblically 
to pray to the Father as opposed to to the Son or to the Spirit. Uh, We are to pray to the Father. And if we were to ask why, I think two answers can be given. Um, One is the rest of this sermon. But the simple answer is uh, because Jesus says so. Why does it matter that I pray to the God the Father as opposed to praying, dear Jesus? As feels so good, doesn't that? Dear Jesus or Lord Jesus. Um, in, in fact, we have a, a family devotional, several family devotionals by Sinclair Ferguson, of, of all people, who has at the start of each devotion uh, for children, uh, Lord Jesus, and then a, a prayer. And it's a great prayer. And it feels so right to pray Lord Jesus. We'll, t- we'll come back to that at the end. But uh, why is it that it matters that we pray to the Father? And the simple answer is that Jesus himself tells us to, which means it matters to Jesus. So just in our text alone, we can see this emphasized by Jesus. Matthew 6, verse 6, he says, as opposed to the hypocrites who pray in public, you, you go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who is in the secret place. Then a few verses later, Therefore, do not be like the hypocrites, for your father knows the things that you have need of before you ask him. Jesus doesn't say, I know what you need. Just ask me. Now, there will be passages of scripture where Christ talks about how he will respond and fulfill the things of which we have need. But when he talks about to whom to pray, it is the father to whom we pray because the Father knows what we need. And then in verse 9, of course, as we all know so well, in this manner, therefore, pray, dear Lord. Uh, Dear Lord is all over the Psalms, isn't it? It would be a quite obvious thing to put here if Jesus was saying it doesn't matter, right? Uh, The Psalms didn't distinguish between first, second, and third persons of the Trinity, it was the one living and true God, the Lord, the Redeemer. And so all, all of these titles are used in prayer. The easy thing would have been for Jesus to say, when you pray, say, Lord God, or Sovereign God, Sovereign Lord, or Redeemer, or something like that. But he emphasizes the first person of the Trinity, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And in fact, in uh, Luke whether it's the same event or he's teaching the same prayer, another instance, Luke chapter 11, when he teaches the Lord's Prayer, notice what it is in response to. The disciples ask, the disciples ask him, teach us to pray. And his response is, pray our Father. So, The simple answer to the question, why does it matter to say that we're supposed to pray to the Father, not the Son? Or, you know, I'm emphasizing the Son here because as Reformed, I think our tendency, and many conservative evangelicals, our tendency is to feel a special closeness to God the Son. It just feels so, if if you were charismatics, 
I would be saying, why isn't that we don't pray to the Spirit, right? Uh, we, we all have this tendency. Why is it that there's no group for whom the, the tendency is to just say, well, obviously God the Father. I, I, I think because we, we tend to perhaps fall into a danger of viewing God the Father as uh, the Old Testament God, Maybe a little curmudgeon If you don't know what that word is, you should look it up because it's a great word. Uh, maybe uh, God the Father is uh, uh, the, the wrathful God. And so New Testament believers, we want to pray. If we're conservative, we say, well, we want to pray, dear Jesus, because he's our savior. And he's, he's the one uh, that we especially uh, feel close to because he's our redeemer. Or if we're, again, charismatic, it's the spirit that is uh, the unique New Testament thing that distinguishes us from uh, the Old Testament God of wrath. And so, so I think even the fact that we have this tendency not to pray to the Father as our natural thing, uh, maybe some of us do, by the way, um, but uh, if, if we don't have that as the natural tendency, I think it's subconsciously, putting us in a, a place of being prone to kind of a, a faulty view of the Father in general, or an Old Testament versus New Testament view of God uh, that could end up in an unfortunate place in terms of our theology. Not always, but at least it, it asks the question. But Christ tells us to pray this way, and that ought to be enough. Whenever Christ says do this, it ought to be enough. So, to the Father... Second, we pray to the Father through the Son. And, and I, I said why the Father makes sense, or, or one of the arguments is the rest of the sermon. Well, as we think about who the Son and the Spirit are, and the fact that they actually are active in our prayer lives, we realize why it fits together that we would be praying to the Father. Think of who, who the Son is. He is the mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. When we think about that, that Christ is the mediator, a mediator by necessity. I shouldn't have to say this. Probably I risk insulting some of you by saying it, but a mediator is someone who stands in between two parties. And so when we think about our prayer lives, if Christ is the mediator, then it means that he isn't the one to whom we're praying, just of necessity. That, that's how that works. Having purchased us with his blood, Hebrews makes it clear that now he as our high priest sits making intercession for us. That's mediatorial language regarding prayer itself. And so when we think of Christ interceding to the Father, receive these prayers, receive them and their prayers because of me. His very office tells us that he is not the one to whom we pray. He's the one through whom we pray. Now, now you might notice something that would argue an exception to this. We talk about the, the mediatorial offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. 
When, um, when Sinclair Ferguson in his devotional has that great little prayer that starts, Lord Jesus, he's praying to Christ in a very, prof- uh, as the prophet, isn't he? He's asking Christ to reveal something to us. And that has a logical sense to it. Why he would be praying to Christ, who is the mouthpiece of God, to reveal himself in his word. That, that seems to have a logical, uh, mediatorial reason for why there would be an exception possibly there when we're asking Christ to open his word to us. Uh, but the other offices then are priest. We've already considered that necessitates. He stands in between us and the father. That's the whole point of a priest. But the third one is king. And, and did you catch what we sang earlier? Jesus shall reign where'er the sun. Endless prayers to him shall be made. Verse two. That, that, I got it a little wrong there, but that's how it starts. Just go and look at Jesus shall reign. And Watts is basing that on the Psalms. He's basing it on the fact that in the Psalms, the, the king, wh- whom is, it's anticipating Christ. We agree about that for the most part in theology, that, that the king who's coming as God or God, who is coming as king, I should say, uh, is, is Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and that nations are going to fall before him and plead their case. And so it seems right for Watts to say that in, in his office as king, perhaps there's an opportunity for us to present our requests. But the, the reality that Christ presents himself predominantly not as the receiver of prayers in the New Testament, but in the, in the book of Hebrews, predominantly as the one who, through whom prayers are brought to the Father. This is a very important thing. It should give us uh, great confidence to ask the Father whatever we need according to his will, if we're doing so, saying, Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Um, we get this, this phrase, in Jesus' name, that sometimes we use rather uh, thoughtlessly. We, amen, tack it on at the end just to, to finish the prayer. How do we know the prayer is over? We said, in Jesus' name. We said, Amen. If we're a child, we might be a little more straightforward and say, all done, or it's over, right? It's just, that, that's sometimes how we use in Jesus' name in prayers, unfortunately. This phrase is taken from John 14, 13 and 14, where Jesus tells us that whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask Anything in my name, I will do it. Now, if we listened to that alone, apart from Jesus' instructions on prayer, we, we might say, well, there's the evidence that we're asking it directly of Jesus. If you ask it in my name, I will do it. But the fact that he uses this phrase, asking in my name, it's not a phrase that speaks of going up to someone and saying, for example, I, I wouldn't uh, go up to um, Abby and say, Abby, in, in Abby's name, 
can I have, I don't know what I would be asking for, but I might go to Peter and say, Abby said I could have this <laughs> or, or something like that, right? When you ask in someone's name, the, the phrase, the, the way it even was used in, in uh, Christ's day did not mean you were asking the person. It meant you were asking, uh, you were asking someone else and that person was the reason why you expected to get it. Um, you might go to someone you'd never met, uh, an important politician or someone, and, and if you had a letter from their brother-in-law, or if you had a letter from some important uh, soldier, a centurion or something, and ask a request, well, maybe that seal that you had from the other person would get you admittance to be heard in their name, you're asking your request and maybe maybe the party owes this person something and so you're asking in their name thinking you'll get it Uh, this is is exactly what Westminster and and also the Heidelberg Catechism emphasizes about the importance of in Jesus name it's not a tacked on thing rather it is something that should create great confidence in us here what the larger catechism has to say in um Question uh, 180 of the larger catechism. The question 180 is, what is it to pray in the name of Christ? And the answer given is, to pray in the name of Christ is in obedience to his command and in confidence on his promises. What we just read in John 14, right? According to his command, ask in my name. And according in confidence in his promises, I will do it to ask mercy for his sake, not by bare mentioning of his name, but by drawing our encouragement to pray and our boldness, strength and hope of acceptance in prayer from Christ and his mediation. That's that's powerful. That means when we say in Jesus' name, we shouldn't just be thinking, let's wrap it up. We should be thinking, I have, I have no reason to be heard except for this name. In fact, that's what Larger Catechism 182 go, uh, 181 goes on to say. Why are we to pray in the name of Christ? The answer, the sinfulness of man and his distance from God by reason thereof being so great as that we can have no access to his presence without a mediator, and there being none in heaven or earth appointed to or fit for that glorious work, but Christ alone, we are to pray in no other name but his only. Think of all the weight then that sits on this this phrase, in Jesus' name, amen. It's not just a phrase, it's, the confidence and the hope, the only hope we have of being heard. I know I've mentioned this book before, but this is why uh, Brian, I believe it was Brian Chappell who wrote the book Praying Backwards. And it's not the best book on prayer that's been written, but it's a good book on prayer that's been added to the, uh, the library of prayer books over the centuries. It's a good book, and the title alone is worth the price of the book. In the first chapter, he explains his title. He says, our problem is we pray all our prayers as if 
sometimes we forget that I don't deserve to be heard. Or sometimes I pray all um, mumbly and, and despondent because I know I don't deserve to be heard. And sometimes then, maybe instead of ending within Jesus' name, we need to start by saying, Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we're going to be expectant and confident to draw near to the throne of grace in time of need because we are praying not in the name of Nathan or Astrid or Peter or Katrina or Abby or Noah or Zion or Mariah or any other name but the name of Jesus. We don't come in the name of St. Augustine or John Calvin or Mary or Peter. We come in the name of Jesus But what other name in heaven and on earth has all authority? What other individual has had God break through the clouds speaking multiple times to crowds? This is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. What other name could cause us to be more confident in coming to him in prayer? We pray to the Father. We pray through the Son. And the, the catechism then adds, by the Spirit's help. We're reformed. We don't talk about the Holy Spirit. Well, well, we do. By the Spirit's help, we come to pray. In a general sense, we have no access to Christ himself as mediator, unless the Holy Spirit gives us the new birth and the regeneration that is needed to have faith and repentance and turn to Christ. But when Christ goes away, the Spirit doesn't just regenerate us, he dwells within us, and his presence is that which causes our union with Christ to feel so near, right? Christ in the upper room talks about how uh, it is good for you that I'm going far away. And you can think how the apostles must have felt. How could it be better for us to have you not here than to have you right here? What an astonishing thing. Christ says, if I'm by the Father's right hand, I can send you the Spirit. And he will be your helper. And one of the things he helps us with. He helps us with our prayers. This is why, for example, Galatians 4 verse 5 and Romans 8 26 talk to us about uh, our prayer lives and our relationship with the Father. Being able to even call him Father is because the Spirit testifies to our hearts that we are adopted. Uh, The Spirit is the one who who causes our groanings because we don't even know how to phrase our prayers or what it is we ought to pray for. And the Spirit takes those groanings. He lifts them up to Christ. And Christ takes them and intercedes these pathetic, wordless groans. He intercedes these broken, pain-filled groans. He intercedes our words, which sometimes are stuttering, literally, and faulty, even sometimes theologically inaccurate because we got caught up in our prayer and we weren't really sure where the sentence was going. 
And yet by the grace of the Spirit, these things are taken to Christ, who intercedes and pleads, not the value of our prayers themselves, but his own blood for these things to be heard. It is the Spirit who takes our prayers, as the, as the Scripture talks about it, as incense going before the throne of God. Uh, all that language in the Old Testament of burning incense. I, I would have been in so much trouble if I was a, a priest, according to Aaron, instead of what I am, because I would have such headaches. They burned so much incense every day. But the book of Revelation talks about the prayers of the saints being like incense before the throne of God. It's the spirit who lifts them up so that they make it past the ceiling, make it out of this room, make it to heaven's high throne where Christ can intercede them. The Holy Spirit takes our prayers to the heavenly places. Christ pleads them. The Father receives them. So what about the, uh, I guess I already talked about the dear Jesus prayers, didn't I? I think there may be a place to pray to Christ that he would open his word to us. I think there may be a time to, to give glory specifically to Christ. We do it all the time in our hymns. I mean, even, and even abide with me, which is clearly based off of them asking Christ to stay with them. It's a prayer to Christ specifically. A lot of our hymns are prayers to Christ. I think that's appropriate in the right balance. Or even a prayer to the Spirit. I think this would be a really good prayer that we might need to make more often as Reformed Christians to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, help me to groan. I don't even know what to pray. Imagine if some days when you didn't feel like praying, you just prayed that. I think the Holy Spirit then would strengthen you to pray to the Father through the Son, whatever your condition. But as a normal rule, certainly let us let Christ set the structure, which is rejoicing in a Trinitarian prayer to the Father, through him the Son, and, for the, and by the strength of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, uh, we do thank you, Father, that we can call you Father. That we have a great high priest, that we have your word revealing to us the word of Christ, that we might come to you in time of need, knowing that we have him pleading for us in heaven. And we thank you for your spirit, who even at this time dwelling within us is assuring us of your adoption and love in Christ. Father, we pray that our prayers would be richer, knowing more and more each day the the reality that we are in union with you, the Holy Trinity, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.